I'm Jason Van Metting. And I'm Ksenia Chmutina. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. We've got to make it trending. Okay, that's our challenge for 2020. <laughs> Hashtag so excited. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> That's just my top priority. I know, right? Mm. <laughs> okay. Let's do it. I already pressed record. All right, so we already kind of we've started on the um the path of nonsensical <laughs> debates. <laughs> That's what everyone has to look forward to in season two. Oh yes, hooray! Uh well yeah, I'm sure everyone's missed us horribly. Perhaps. I've missed, um, yeah, I've missed the podcast. Come on, I have as well. But um, in a in a way, it's been nice to not have a weekly deadline for a while. Yeah, yeah, I kind of appreciate that. It's nice that we had that break, and so hopefully the listeners have enjoyed it too. And you know, because they've missed us horribly now, everyone's just going to listen to us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like reading through all the fan mail and stuff, people are just desperate to hear some more. <laughs> oh man, we're so humble. <sighs> but it, I mean, it was great to reflect on things that we've done and on things that we're going and going to do in this season, because I think we were towards the end of the season, right? We were a little bit rushed. Um, and so it, it, it's been great to discuss a few things. Yeah, it's uh, maybe part of just getting used to creating content um, consistently. And... Yeah, like 20, 20 weeks of Monday releases was pretty intense, but, and yeah, towards the end, it got a bit, a bit tricky when we were, were scrambling to get our, get our last few weeks out, but we did it. And I think in season two, definitely looking forward to uh, the fact that we have a lot of stuff already recorded. Yeah, we've been so organized. I mean, Jason, we've been talking for what, like four days in a row now, every day. Yeah, we really seem to be on top of it. And um, we have plans for different special episodes that we might be releasing on Fridays, as well as our Monday season, regular season releases. Um, yeah, so, so hashtag so excited, right? Hashtag so excited. I know, it's so excited. But what I'm excited about is that this season, we are actually really will try and step away from the academic discourse, you know. And of course, whilst there, will still, there is still place for academic discourse and we have some amazing guests uh, who are academics, we will also be talking to quite a few people who have nothing to do with academia, which is great, hopefully, um, because I think it's just so important to have that other perspective and to just open up our academic bubble a little bit. Absolutely. And um, we are definitely still looking for um, more guests to come on and suggestions. So mm -hmm. as always, um, the listeners have been great in making suggestions for some of those upcoming episodes. Um, and we'll keep putting out the word on Twitter when we're looking for somebody to that would be appropriate to talk about a certain issue. And yeah, the, the season overall is going to be quite different. So in season one, we dealt with some of the basic concepts and issues of concern in disaster studies. And so one of the things that we found out was that 
you know, people have a lot of stories to share and can go a lot deeper to uh, into some of these issues and that the story and the narrative and the language we use is so important. So a couple of months ago, I guess we kind of settled on the idea of our second season being about stories of disaster, right? Right. And this is the difference, I guess, with the first season that, you know, instead of going into different particular concepts, we will um, try and tie all these concepts together in the second season. I think what we've discovered in the first season is that actually every single concept um, can be a season in itself, right? Um, you know, we could talk for about maybe kind of 20 episodes about vulnerability and 20 episodes about capacities. Whereas in this season, we will bring everything together and we are hoping that, uh, you know, by talking about stories, by talking about narratives, we will be able to reflect every single side of disaster and we will be able to think a little bit more and encourage the conversation about how we talk about disasters and why these narratives are so important to us um, as disaster scholars, but also for those who are researched in disaster scholarship. So as this first episode of season two, which is broadly about stories of disaster, we do actually have a guest on with us today, and we're really um, very privileged to have this guest on. Most of our listeners will be familiar with our guest today. Laurie Peake is a professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Colorado, Boulder, and the director of the Natural Hazard Center. Laurie's research on vulnerable populations in disasters is influential, as is her voice and leadership within the global disaster research community. Welcome, Laurie. So great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to join you both today. Oh, welcome, Laurie. Well, when Jason and I were sort of talking about second season and we're trying to figure out how can we open the second season, we thought we couldn't really find a better person than you to talk to us about the theme of the second season. And the season is about stories of disasters, because over the previous 20 episodes in the first um, season, we looked at um, different concepts of disasters. And now we want to tie it all together in stories and narratives and different ways of framing issues. And so hopefully you're as excited as we are about the stories and narratives and disasters. I am truly so excited. When you both reached out to me, I, I was thrilled to have the opportunity to talk about this and really um, just honored to get to kick off the new season and really excited to know that your listeners are excited to talk more about stories. In our first season, a lot of our listeners felt the most connection to some of the guests that we had on that shared really specific stories from the field. Um, and we did have mostly researchers on and they were talking about some of the, the work that they had done in different settings. And um, because of that feedback we got on Twitter and by email and um, face to face and from some of our contacts, um, it, we really wanted to devote the whole second season to unpacking this as a theme. And so just to kick off, I wanted to ask you, Laurie, what is it about stories that creates connection between people? Yeah, that is a, a great opening question. And I want to say at the outset that I think stories are absolutely integral to everything that we do. Stories have been integral to our survival as a people on this planet. 
for longer than written history. Stories are not only what create connection between people, but stories, I think, also are what make empathy possible and understanding. But stories also help complicate things. They bring difference and diversity and complexity into all of our lives. And so I think as researchers, stories are so important because it's through stories that I think we can actually attain deeper knowledge about the people and the places that we care so much about. And I was thinking about as I was getting ready for this podcast, why why do I love hearing stories, listening to stories? Why have stories become so integral to my own research? And I think that um, one of the answers to that is when I was an undergraduate sociology major at Ottawa University in Kansas, one of the first assignments that I did for one of my first sociology classes is that our professor had us all go out and interview elderly individuals who were in this uh, relatively small community where our university was located. And I remember sitting in the home of this elderly woman who she had lived through World War II. She um, had all of these stories to tell about how life had transformed for her in the decades that she had been alive. And it was in that moment that everything that was in my textbooks about the sociological imagination being the connection between biography and history and society all of a sudden, all of those things that were just words on a page became so illuminated as I sat in that woman's room and, and listened to her story. And I really think that was the start of what has become a long, long journey in my own research career of really wanting to, to listen to survivors of disaster as well as people who are living at risk. What does that look like in your career? How have you... Um, use that knowledge about what stories are able to do to um, actually improve the way that you undertake research? Yeah, so I think this is one of the really important things to talk about on this podcast, because I know that you do have a lot of researchers on the podcast yeah. that listen <laughs> to this, is that really thinking about how do we collect stories systematically as part of the research process, but also how can the stories that we tell to one another, that researchers and practitioners tell to each other, that survivors tell to us, how can those stories also ignite and enliven and improve the research process itself. And so um, I know we're going to dive into a little more depth with, with both of those themes, both story as data, but also stories as research tools and how they can actually improve the research process. And so um, I know those are two threads that we're going to pull out in the, the podcast today. So I'm definitely looking uh, forward to talking further about that because I do think that the stories we know, we know that they're memorable, they're engaging, they're complex when they're they're told in their best form. And so that I think is, is part of the power of stories. And, and I'm really intrigued by this question of how can we harness that power for a greater good? Yeah. 
So in your research career, how do you choose whose story to tell? Because of course you work very much with marginalized group, with vulnerable, you know, for choice of a better word. So how do you choose the story and how do you choose the story to amplify? Yes. Um, so Ksenia, to answer that beautiful question, I actually wondered if I could read a, a brief excerpt from my book, Behind the Backlash, which is about the experience and stories of Muslims, Amer Muslim Americans after 9-11. Yes, yes, please. Okay. And this, I think, will answer the question somewhat about whose, whose story is this anyway, and whose story do we tell? Um, so this is from the, the conclusion to Behind the Backlash. So I wrote, in the aftermath of 9-11, powerful voices joined together to tell the story of the terrorist attacks. Although the verses differed, the refrain almost always went something like this. Quote, on the morning of September 11, 2001, Americans were shocked into collective solidarity the airliners turned into cruise missiles that crashed into the World Trade Center in New York City, into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and into a field in Pennsylvania, brought to life a collective sense of humanity, vulnerability, and national connectedness. Through the televised repetition of images of physical devastation, human misery, and heroic acts by civil servants and civilians, Americans were drawn together in shared grief and pride. I go on to write, the quote above exemplifies what sociologist Monisha Dasgupta refers to as, quote, the dominant interpretation of 9-11. This particular narrative, which privileges social solidarity and civic renewal above all else, is not untrue, at least in the sense that it does indeed capture how Americans experienced 9-11, but the narrative is incomplete. And so pausing there, I, I want to say that it was that recognition that, that that first story, that was true for so many Americans. That was their experience of 9-11. It was an experience of people coming together, of, of people bonding through their shared loss and shared suffering. But as I noted at the end of that excerpt, I recognized, as so many others did as well, that that story was incomplete because it, it wasn't the only story after 9-11. Muslim Americans were caught up in a wave of backlash violence that followed those terrorist attacks. They experienced a 1600% increase in hate crimes and a dramatic increase in bias incidents. And that was part of their story of 9-11. And so to answer your beautiful question, Ksenia, about whose voice have I um, really focused on in my own research or whose voices? I, I have really always been so interested in, fascinated by, and I, I hope respectful of uh, diverse people's voices and especially marginalized groups' voices because I think sometimes it's not that they're not talking or that they don't have a story to tell, but sometimes their stories get drowned out by other powerful actors or their stories just simply aren't heard because our systems for telling and receiving stories aren't always set up to hear those voices and to hear those stories. So I, I really wanted to say that related to 
the 9-11 research and then related to the research that Ellis Fothergill and I did after Hurricane Katrina, where we followed children for nearly a decade and, and had the profound honor of listening to the stories of hundreds of children who had their lives upended by that hurricane. One of the things that Alice and I recognized at the beginning of that research was that there are sort of two big stories that get told often by adults about children's lives. And one of those stories is that children are like little red rubber balls, that they're resilient and they will just bounce back after disaster. But then there's this other contradictory story that's also told about children, which is that they are vulnerable victims, that they show up on every list of, of vulnerable people in disasters. And of course, when you stop and think about it for even a minute, those stories are, are incomplete. Are children resilient? Are they vulnerable? And what do children have to say about this? And so at the outset of working on that project, we really wanted to center children's voices and center children's stories because, again, they represent another group that is oftentimes unheard and unrecognized in the disaster space, although I'm, I'm so glad to say that that is really changing and has really changed over the last decade. Yeah, and I think it's really important that you've emphasized that because very often as researchers, we are telling stories about people, right? About particular groups of people. But very often, I don't think we consider the empower balance that these stories may reinforce or create. And of course, you've recently just published an article with JC Guillard in Nature, which is absolutely brilliant. So yes, thank you for this work. And we will be discussing it a little bit later on the podcast. Uh, so something to look forward to. But going back to the stories and the way we tell them, what it is do we need to remember in order to be ethical in doing and communicating our research? Ksenia, thank, thank you so much for reading that article and, and thank you for um, asking this question. And you are right that JC and I started working on that article well over a year ago. And what was really driving us in, in writing this article was in part this question that you're posing about Again, whose story is this? Who has the power to tell stories? Who has the power to collect data, to share data, to amplify findings? And so in that article, if I had to sum it up in a sentence, really our core argument is that, that we want to ensure that ethical concerns have the same primacy as research questions. And so we, we value those research questions. We want to continue to see the research questions be centered as we move forward with research projects. But we think that when we give uh, our ethical stance and think about our ethical stance and we elevate it in the same sort of way, we actually think that that can enhance the research process for the researchers as well as for the researched. And so to answer your question about that, the three things that we really set forth there in response to how can we possibly be more ethical is that we're really calling for a code of conduct for researchers who are doing work in 
disaster zones and especially large scale disasters that attract large numbers of researchers. And so the three things that we were really calling for is one, that it's so important for researchers to establish a clear purpose for the research. So why are we going into the field and what is it that we're trying to achieve? Second, in that process and integral to that process and to defining the purpose is how do we ensure that we are always respecting local survivors and local researchers while also protecting the rights of researchers and of local people and survivors. And then third, in order to make that happen, we think it's really crucial to identify and coordinate researchers in order to reduce duplication of effort to reduce respondent burden, but also to to really ensure that research is ethical, that it's grounded in local cultures and customs, and especially in the needs of local survivors. I think it's quite unfortunate that still so many researchers only think about research and they don't really think about the feelings of those who are researched, but also of the feelings that the audience may have when they read their research. So what do you want your audience to feel? Yeah, so I hope that... One, I I mean, I have to say this is a great question about audience and I actually one of the things with my graduate students and collaborators, whenever we're at the start of a project, we're, we're at a midpoint when we start to produce results and reports and articles and PowerPoint slides and things like that, we try to pause at every moment and ask ourselves, who is our audience? Because there are oftentimes multiple audiences. And we know that even when you're telling the same story, that people hear those stories through their own knowledge, their own experience, their own cultural background and context. And so we really try to embed that question about who is your audience at every point. And I will say, Ksenia, that the prime audience that I always think about first and foremost are the the persons who have participated in the research that I ask mm-hmm. myself at every point, uh, is this true? What I'm reporting, is this honoring their story, but also honoring the research process? And that can sometimes be, those questions can be really hard uh, to to answer them sometimes when we pose them to ourselves as researchers. And so I think asking, you know, when our research participants are our audience and really thinking about what, how are they consuming this and how might this feed back into the community or the context where the research was conducted. Then also asking ourselves if our uh, current and future audiences are students, are they policymakers? Are they fellow researchers? And when I think we think carefully about those different audiences and how they might 
consume that information, how they may react to that information, but ultimately how they may use that information, how how that research may be turned into action. I think that this is can be a really powerful conversation for us to have together as researchers, but it really means that we have to pause. We have to think carefully about those different audiences, their different interests, their different needs, their different backgrounds. And then again, if we all share this common common cause of wanting our research to actually find an audience, then again, how can we have those conversations to make sure that that happens? I really love what you're saying about um, communicating to different audiences, Laurie. And uh, I did a workshop recently with the graduate students in my college um, talking about, you know, going beyond academic writing and communication, because I think in a lot of disciplines, that's about the extent of the training that people receive. Um, and so a lot of research, even in, in the disaster field, um, fails to go beyond communicating back to the research community, um, which is a big lost opportunity, right? Right. And, and I, oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things that is so heartbreaking, truly heartbreaking to me, because I, I am, I love being a member of this research community. It, it's the greatest honor of my professional life to get to say that I am a hazards and disaster researcher and part of this global community. But then it also breaks my heart when yet another disaster happens. And among ourselves as researchers, we say, we already knew that. We knew that was coming. We knew those people yeah. were living at risk. We knew that pick your pick your population we knew that the children were disproportionately vulnerable we knew that elderly people were going to be left in harm's way we knew that people of color were living in the floodplain or living in unreinforced masonry homes and so it's really heartbreaking in the sense that we have all of this knowledge and this knowledge i i believe with my whole being can can really influence those outcomes and can help us to turn the tide in terms of these rising disaster losses but in order for that to happen that question jason about how do we take that research and how do we move it into action how do we get it into the hands of people who are making decisions that can have these measurable impacts in people's lives? How can we get it into the hands of people who are living at risk, who may need that knowledge, uh, that systematic knowledge the most, but also who may possess so much knowledge that may be untapped? Mm -hmm. And so I love that you did that workshop. And I am really, really so pleased to see that now this new generation of researchers who are entering our field, I I think they do have more examples and more role models who are out there who are really thinking about these issues and how do we move this research out into a broader public and how do we communicate with journalists so we can amplify our, amplify our stories? How do we get in front of elected officials and others who are really making decisions at the local, state, national level every single day that are going to have impacts on people's lives today, but also well into the future? And so I think the more that we can uplift those people who are out 
out there doing that work because oftentimes that work is hard. It's time consuming and it doesn't always get recognized in our universities, in our formal systems for evaluation. And so I think the more that we can really question, what are we valuing and, and um, how, how do we assign, uh, how do we assign points in our annual evaluations to somebody who wrote an op-ed or somebody who testified before Congress or somebody who just shows up to their local city council meeting every single month so they can say, don't, don't put those buildings in a floodplain, please, because that's a disaster by design. And, and so again, I just, I really, um, I see in the students that they, are really excited and new colleagues who are entering this field who are trying to to respond to these questions too. So I think it's just really good. We keep this conversation going. I recently read your article with Mithra Moetzi about um, experience stories and how they can help us um, work together as interdisciplinary researchers in disaster. Maybe you could tell us a bit about what that actually looks like in practice. Thank you for asking that question, Jason. And just to give a little bit of context to where this article came from, a couple of years ago, Seth Geikema, who is an engineer at the University of Michigan, he and I partnered up and we actually wrote a National Science Foundation workshop grant for interdisciplinary methods in hazards and disaster research. And that allowed us to bring together about 40 researchers, all of different stages in terms of their careers, representing a variety of different disciplines. And we came together for a couple of different workshops where we were both trying to identify what are the research methods that are being used by hazards and disaster researchers working in interdisciplinary teams. But then as the workshop progressed the first workshop, we realized that we were talking less about methods and we were more talking about approaches and how do we even bring people from diverse disciplinary backgrounds together and how do we get them to work together and so forth. And so the paper that Mithra and I wrote together, and and Mithra is an extraordinary scholar, and she was one of the participants in this interdisciplinary methods workshop series. It is called Stories for Interdisciplinary Disaster Research Collaboration. And our main question that we pose with this article is what if we use the stories that researchers and practitioners tell each other as tools to advance interdisciplinary disaster research? And so we really, in this article, we recognize that hazards and disaster researchers have long used stories and narrative in the form of systematic data that's been collected for qualitative studies. But in our article, we're really talking about something different than that. We're talking about something that we define as experience stories. And these are stories that individuals tell about something that happened during the research process. And so these experience stories, they oftentimes, like any story, combine some element of descriptive observation, interpretation, maybe even a little embellishment. But the stance that Mithra and I take is that 
again, what if we took those stories that researchers tell each other in teams? What if we took those really seriously? What if we listened to the stories that researchers are telling one another? And if we turn those into research tools? And so to make something that I know might sound a little abstract, a little more concrete, we give the example in the article of um, Imagine that a bunch of social scientists and a bunch of engineers are working together on a project and the social scientists go out with the engineers to collect data after a hurricane and something that the social scientists see and start telling stories amongst themselves is they go, oh my gosh, the engineers are, they're actually talking to homeowners and they're asking homeowners questions like, why, why didn't you evacuate and why didn't you put shutters? hurricane shutters up before the storm made landfall. And so the social scientists are kind of talking to themselves and they're telling those stories. But then if those stories never find the light of day in the broader interdisciplinary team, then an opportunity may be lost for the engineers and the social scientists to actually connect with one another. And so again, going back to that story, let's say that in the interdisciplinary team, context. We actually carved out time where the social scientists got to tell the story of what they saw and why it was noteworthy. And so the social scientists might say this was really noteworthy to us because when we speak to human populations after a disaster, we're required to have institutional review board approval. This is what IRB is. This is why it's in place. And then the engineers could tell the story of how they use that information that they are gathering from the people who are affected in the hurricane. And then we could talk to one another. And that may be a space where we could really advance our interdisciplinary projects. And so this really, what we argue in the article is that we need to take these stories seriously. So we, we, of course, treat these stories as different from, we, they're not gossip, they're not critique. We really see experienced stories as us taking the time as researchers to tell one another what we do, why we do it to make our stance, our ethical stance, our epistemological stance to make it really explicit. Um, but one of the things we recognize is oftentimes in interdisciplinary teams, we, we don't carve out the time to do that. We, we instead, we're all about the research question, the data we're collecting, but we really want to make this case that spending as much time on that process element of interdisciplinary projects can actually strengthen the overall project. And that's where I think those interdisciplinary breakthroughs and our possibilities for understanding across disciplinary lines can become much more possible. Yeah, and using that example of um, different or researchers with different ideas about um, about the world, um, we we start to see the the use of storytelling and breaking down those differences um, and getting people to actually question things that they believe. Um, so, Laurie, in our society, which is so divided and so untrusting of, e of each other, especially when we, we have different beliefs and ideas. Um, are, there, are there lessons to be learned here about the power of story to break down barriers? 
Yes, and absolutely. And Jason, I want to say in response to that question, that that is even a story, right? That that is a story of our time. And that is a story we are telling ourselves right now that we are divided and we are untrusting. And there is indeed plenty of evidence that that is a true story. But there is also evidence of other stories, right, of of people coming together across disciplinary lines and people sharing their stories and and finding points of difference, plenty points of, of difference, but also finding common understanding. And so I I think your question is so, so important. And I think given this moment that we are living in and given these divisions that are so real and given the marginalization of certain people and certain stories that is really being amplified during this time, I think it becomes all all the more crucial that we really pause to listen to each other, that we really value stories and and don't fear them because I think sometimes it, we we think of capital S science and capital S scholarship and then stories are sort of over to the side and we're sort of even fearful of that instead of embracing stories and thinking about how beautiful they can be and and how much we can learn and so to return to that formal former example of what do the social scientists see I would welcome and love, I love working with engineers because they often come to me and say, Lori, why are you doing that thing? Or what on earth can we possibly learn from listening to a, to stories from people? How do you actually turn that into usable data? And how can we use that in models that we're trying to use in engineering? And so I think when, again, this is, this is the power of storytelling, but it can only be fully realized when we actually come to the table from a position of respect, from a position of curiosity about one another, from a position of trying to recognize that there are power imbalances, but through this process of really listening, that that may be one pathway for starting to to open up a more equal and egalitarian space in the hazards and disaster research field. So Again, I I think there are so many wider lessons to be learned, and I am so thankful to you both for dedicating this season to uh, stories and storytelling so that we, we all can listen to one another and learn about how stories are being deployed and used and recognized and challenged in different spaces. And Laurie, I think you've explained so well why stories are so important to us and why we should tell more stories. And of course, you've emphasized that it's not just the researchers who need to tell the stories. It's important that the stories are told and involve um, the people who are affected, but also the people who want to learn about disasters or maybe don't want to learn about disasters, in fact. So how do we create this culture of storytelling? And also, how do we challenge the normative and dominant narratives that are so everywhere? 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. And this is this is where it's it's so this is such an important question because sometimes everybody can nod their head and go, "Yes, I love stories." And and yes, we want to hear more stories. Yes, you're right. I I I love to sit in a room where people are telling stories and that is so much more engaging and I remember that more. But then the question becomes if 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 we're nodding our heads and if we're going, yes, yes, we want more of that. And, and um, then, then the, excuse me, then the question becomes, how do we implement structures and how do we create spaces that will actually welcome stories and will invite people to tell stories? Because we know that the ways that many of our traditional um, systems for sharing research and research findings, they are oftentimes one way, right? When we write an article or we write even an op-ed, something like that, that we put out into the universe, it's, it's completely, it's completely one way. We may, might get some feedback from some reader eventually, but a lot of what we do in research, really, really what we're conveying is not in dialogue at the start, but through our writing, that may be a place for opening up a space for dialogue. But then again, if we enter into a meeting space, how do we set up meeting spaces so they are more democratic, so they are more inclusive in terms of opening up more spaces for more people to be able to tell their stories? How do we change the very structure of what we're doing? And I think there are so many people who are expert in this, right? Like there are facilitators who run workshops that are really grounded in storytelling and are grounded in democratizing the process of sharing our stories. And so I think looking to the experts, looking to people who really are shifting how they set up everything from department meetings to conferences that involve hundreds, if not thousands of people, where they, we really are turning these spaces into working spaces and spaces where people are invited to share and are invited to tell their stories instead of there sort of being this top-down, one-way communication that oftentimes does emerge because that has been the way that many, many of our meeting spaces and other spaces have been set up. So I think really stepping back and thinking, if we value stories and if we want to hear more stories and if we want to really learn from the story systematically, then how do we set up everything from our research projects, to our research laboratories, to our ways of sharing and presenting our findings to ensure that there really is that possibility for two-way and three-way and multi-way communication and sharing. Hmm. Thanks for um, bringing so much positivity to this discussion, Laurie. It's been amazing.
uh, will will thank you. And I, I don't know if this is true or not, but it does seem like when you work in a field like the hazards and disaster field, that we are both excellent at documenting failures that it that is part of what we that's part of our job is we are the ones who oftentimes are responsible for documenting where people are vulnerable and which places are most at risk but what i think is also beautiful about this field is we also imagine different futures that is what mitigation and preparedness that's what it's about, right? It's about imagining a future that looks different than the present. And so uh, thank you for saying that. And thank you for being two people who are really igniting a new imagined future and, and one where maybe we have a chance to tell more stories. And I have to say, Jason and Ksenia, I look forward to hearing more of your stories in the future. And thank you for opening up this space for many of us to have a chance to share a story. Thank you. Well, hope you enjoyed the first episode of second season. You know, we're really excited to be back. And thanks again, Laurie, for talking to us. It's such a good opening to the season. As always, you know where to find us. We are releasing new episodes every week on Mondays for the rest of the seasons. And there will be special episodes as well on, on Fridays. So watch Twitter for more information. And please follow us on Twitter at DisastersDecon and on Instagram at DisastersDecon and also join Special Contact at Discord. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason and me, Lori Peak on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.